I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. We're down to the last two rounds of the Six Nations. All eyes will be on Twitter this weekend as the old rivals England and Ireland square off. And knowing the loser relinquishes all chances of lifting the trophy at the end of the tournament. And the Irish, well, they're impressed so far. We'll be getting the verdict of the Irish Times' Liam Toland. Uh, and uh, we'll ask him what kind of performance he's expecting from Andy Farrell's side ahead of the clash. England's preparations have been dented by injuries to Luke Cowan, Dickie and Johnny Hill. And a positive Covid test for number eight, Alex Dombrandt. However, there is a return the squad for the open side, Sam Underhill. We'll discuss if he should go straight back into the side, having completed just an hour of rugby since January. France, well, they remain on course for the Grand Slam. And next up is a trip to Cardiff on Friday night to face Wales under the lights in the Principality Stadium. We'll be looking ahead to that one and discuss what chance, if any, Wales have of doing either England or Ireland a massive favour heading into the final weekend. Elsewhere, we'll be discussing... The controversial red card for Duan van der Merwe, which could see him ruled out of Scotland's class with Italy this weekend. And we'll be talking Doncaster and Ealing and their battle with the Premiership after they are both denied applications to be promoted from the Championship. Delighted to welcome back alongside me the former England Sevens captain, Rob Vickle. Hello, Rob. Hello, Sir Brian. Ah, yes, exactly. Services to me, from me to myself. (laughs) To be fair, I've been consistently good at that. Um, Look, uh, I haven't seen you since before the tournament uh, to look at England. What have you thought of their campaign so far? Well, a mixed report, I think. Um, seeing it first time, watching a bit of their warm-ups, that kind of cohesion going into it, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing a bit of the fresh faces. I think that's one overriding factor. Many people have opinions about Marcus Smith. Many of them very positive. I like where Harry Randall's going, and I like Alex Dombrandt. My, my main concern is, I guess, and I don't know why I even try and do it, is trying to work out Eddie's strategy. <laughs> and think, right, OK, we're talking about 14 games to the World Cup. What are we seeing now that we're going to see for the big show, the big one, when it matters the most? And I still don't know that answer. Well, I tried to um, define, but both him and Andy Farrell saying this, and you told me in the discussion just before we came uh, to record, that uh, chaos is, a, is a, a standard coaching theory, which is a strange thing because chaos as a word means to most people... Um, haphazard, 
um, without thought, um, and you're in a mess. It doesn't mean that, obviously. So what do you think they mean? What do you mean? What does every other coach mean? Because I know what I think, you know, and we can discuss that. Yeah, I'd say the big word would be unstructured. So you want a point where your defence is fragmented, no one really knows what's going on, Often in rugby, you see the first three starter plays has been the thing that gives you that ascendancy into what you want to do, and then it's looking for that disconnect. The easiest way to get that is to create chaos. So do things that are completely unexpected that nor you can necessarily prepare for, or the opponents, and who adjusts fastest to that. Because what I'm what I explained is this: anything that's structured can is analysed by the defensive teams of international international countries and they are very well organised now anything you can see and recognise you can plan for um, in the same way that you know one of the reasons why Tom Brady is a goat he's, he's been said to be one of if the best ever quarterback to be able to see what a defence is showing and what that means where the gaps will be and he knows automatically if I look there that's covered that will be open this will be open so that's what they're trying to get away from the problem with that is it is very it is, it is actually this. What you want to give is the ball carrier and all the runners off the ball carrier as many options as they can, and then they choose one last minute. Because if it's last minute, the defenders have to make a choice last minute. And if there are options, they will see there are three or four possibilities, but they can only cover one. So if they get it right, fine. If they don't, and that's what it's really about. But it's a very difficult thing to get right because if you're making a last-minute decision as a ball carrier, all the players around you also have to adjust to that. So do I come short for a, a an offload in the in the tackle? Do I hang back a bit so I can hit and time the run to clear you out if you go to ground? Do I stay where I am so I can draw a defender? Do I run deep so I get the deep pass? And so on. And of course, if you make one decision as a nearest player, everyone else has to adjust their decision. And to get that all right a lot requires, one, a high level of fitness, two, a high level of rugby intelligence, and three, a lot of faith. Because just to abandon yourself to this is not easy, because it's much easier to say, right, I'm third in a the pod, therefore I, I'm, the, I'm the second clearer or the first clearer, and so on. But when it works, obviously, it's much more difficult to defend. Can you do it in 14 games? Well, um, I think you can. The thing that really shocks me, and I keep seeing this statistic that blows my mind on it, is how few offloads there are in the game of rugby, Northern Hemisphere rugby, yes. probably excluding France on occasion, but... England against Wales, they had six offloads. Now, you've got to think the size of these humans we're talking about here. Massive physical presence, dominant, they win those collisions, but they're not willing to risk an offload. Just six of them all well, the game. Po- my point is, there might be more, but they're not, it doesn't appear to me... That they're, they're, for example, the Harlequins players, um, one of the most effective ploys that they've, they've used on their way up and the style is the offload, and they've been willing to look for it all the time. And yet the players, uh, when they get England jerseys, are not doing exactly what they, the same as they do for the club. Now, that, that is part and parcel. It's, part of it is because international defences are better, but it's also a mindset, isn't it? Are they looking for it? Yeah, and it's a spectrum. Always a spectrum with an offload. You've got risk and reward. Where are you going to place yourself? The coach often sets a parameter within that and say, right, OK, we want to chance it. We're willing to risk those a few more. You practice it in training. You go through that actual technique of how to hold it, if you're rolling it out, if you're flicking it out, those types of real nuanced styles that teams practice often, and I know we don't have to go into rugby league at Parlance here, Brian, because we're both big fans of it, but they spend an inordinate amount of time about grip and getting those offloads free, because in rugby league, you offload, 
it's a line break, you pretty yeah. much scored. Yeah. I just don't know why that transition isn't happening from club to country at the moment. But if you get it right, with these players, and we're talking about front fives who are adept at handling, let's look for more opportunity to get in behind because that is one surefire way. You mentioned Northern chaos. Hemisphere. Are you making the distinction that it happens? Are you making the assertion that it does happen more often in the Southern Hemisphere? Well, I'd say mainly just Australasia. You've got Fiji, obviously, mm. they're born to offload. New Zealand set parameters in how they do it. They're, they're the trendsetters for me because they do it at the right time rather than just do it all the time. Uh, and then Australia have a willing as well. I don't think South Africa are in that bracket. You know, clearly we've said that before. Yeah. Um, I, look, Don Brandt being um, a serious doubt after catching COVID, um, that's not going to help the offloading because that's one of the things he does do well. Um, Underhill, would you instruct him to... He's only had an hour since January, but... Yeah, it's not as long as he... And no. that, that is a concern. But if you want a defensive phenom... You're going to have some underhill in your team. And the, the fact that Ireland are going to come hard and physical and their intensity against the French was just almost, you know, a different game. You're watching it sometimes going, wow, it's like they've set a whole new level of international rugby when they were going at it. And I think Underhill would step up to that. He's, for me, he is the best defender in England. Why would you not have him in? Would you say that, uh, and this is not, a, for the first time, it's not a... He's not a derogatory common. Would you say Ireland are more chaotic than England at the moment? <laughs> well, I had a chat with Stuart Lancaster post the success of Ireland against the All Blacks. And he said what's really pleasing him, clearly, is that they're playing very much a Leinster model. They've got a massive cohort of the Leinster players in it. But he's another one that creates that chaos, but with a degree of structure and understanding. And yep. when you watch Leinster play, they can really up the gears, but still stay in complete control of situations. And that's that's what's really working well for Ireland. They have very similar transitional plays. They have very f- similar front foot plays, but they've got it right across the board. And I think that they're looking spectacular. I think England uh, are cautious of that, but also happy the fact that Porter um, is out as well. I think he's a big player for them. Yeah. Uh, let, um, let's discuss Manu Tuolagi because I haven't seen you um, mm. since, since the tournament started. And he missed this game last weekend. He's going to miss this uh, one. Where do you stand on the Tuolagi debate? I, I made my view clear and just said, look, let him play a lot of games with his club before you even consider him again because you just cannot base international selection on someone, and it's not his fault, on someone who so regularly has to withdraw late. It just, it just messes everything up. So I would, say, look, I would say, look, Manu, we really do want you here, but you've got to show some longevity in club. I think the days of Manu Tulangi starting for England and spearheading a campaign have gone. Yeah. I think if he's going to impact, it would be that, an impact. And he'd yeah. come on for 20 minutes. He might even come on for two splits, you know, and, and get him in a position where he's going to really destroy people because he's that that frightening as a prospect. And having played against him when he was coming up, you just can't even comprehend his power. Yeah. And that's something that genetically we just do not have in England. Like yeah. He is phenomenal, but realistically hasn't got that longevity. He's 30, he's missed 79 international games from being injured. 79? 79 games where he could have been available. Cool. Um, and that that well, is. I did say scary. I did say to someone the other day. Can you imagine what England's setup might have been like had he been fit for all those games and you, you you'd have been able to to build the attacking core around him? You know, both in terms of carrying dummies and everything, it would have been it would have been completely different. Yeah, and that's probably why you know there's so much pressure on him to play the way he plays. I actually brought Matt Tate down to Twickenham uh, for the for the Wales game and was chatting to him, obviously playing at Leicester with him for a number of years. 
and said just just how exceptional was he? He said he is frighteningly exceptional, but just too powerful for his own body. Yeah. So it's a case of groins, hamstrings, everything that's been strained because when he came when he came through the ranks, and it was the same with his brother Andy. Andy was eighty nine kilograms at eighteen, and then suddenly got one hundred and eighteen kilograms when he was twenty one, and that that increment, that massive change on your system. It just means there's too much stress on your joints, and obviously not a physio, I don't know this, but you'd think for all man who does and for all the effort he puts in, training and games, it's well, just the, too the, much for him. This is one of the things, you can build your musculature up, you can't do anything about your tendons and your skeletal system, can mm. you? No, and they've right. got to take, you know, they've got, and one of the things, you know, I've, I, you know, which is a definite um, physiological plus, is the bone density of, especially Pacific Island players, is completely different to, say, European. They are much bigger built. They just are. You know, and when you feel that when you go into contacts. Yeah, well, and yeah, skeletally, we, we had a guy called Mark Adajobi, who used to play for Wasps, got brought into the sevens. Again, very similar, just an absolute freak of an athlete. He could just walk into a gym, completely stone cold, pick up 230 kilograms on a deadlift and just rep it for fun. He was so strong. And one of the things he kept doing was breaking his feet. Because when he went to sidestep, the force going through his feet was so strong that his his bone density was then called into question because he's that powerful. I know we're talking around it here, but I do think, you know, the lying issue is longer term, I don't think you can plan for Manu Tolangi spearheading as a 12. Well, time now to speak to Liam Tolum of the Irish Times about the up-and-coming clash at Twickenham. Hello, Liam. How are you doing? Okay, um... I predicted there'd be chaos at Twickenham, and I'm not just talking about a station, uh, which is always the same. But um, the Autumn Nation series, the Irish um, media were, were asking Andy Farrell, you know, what is what is the the Irish style? And he was similar to Eddie Jones said he wanted to create chaos. Now that is a word which has certain connotations, not necessarily good. What do you understand to Farrell to mean uh, by that, and and has he achieved it? Wow, okay, there's a fair bit in that, Brian. Uh, I think the first the first thing is, if the opposition think it's chaotic, that's good. But if the team themselves think it's chaotic, I'm not so sure how clever that is. But what is definitely coming, there's a pattern developing over, and I, I mentioned it before, I really saw it happen in the autumn series against Japan, that the, the, the comfort with which the Irish players are playing a brand of rugby that is very similar to New Zealand in many many ways and it's 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 no um it's 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 no surprise i suppose when you look at some of the players being selected but for the first time in a, in probably my memory and certainly since Joe Smith passed passed on uh, the mantle, that the Irish players are asking so many questions of the opposition that wasn't happening under the Joe Smith regime. The Joe Smith regime expected Brian Moore or Liam Toland or whomever to be in the exact place at the exact time. And it was very rock-based, wasn't it? It was kind of one out pass and the likes of CJ Stander were were leading the charge in that sense. What you see now is someone like Caelan Darris, who's playing at six or eight, who has, he's like a hybrid of many number eights have played for Ireland but has the skill set the football he's he's brilliant in traffic and he is creating opportunities for other players to, to relish from and those opportunities are coming because Ireland are really asking questions of the defence and there's a multitude of op- 
options available to them. You you saw props, Irish props like Tarek Furlan taking the ball on. You don't know if he's going to carry the ball, is he going to take it into contact, or is he going to pass it lastminute.com? And there's an awful lot within what Ireland are trying to do. I don't think it's chaotic. I think it's maybe after a certain amount of phases, it's eyes up stuff. But at this point in time, if an Irish player gets into heavy traffic, if they throw the ball left or right without even looking, there's a fair chance there's an Irish player who's going to run onto that ball with menace. And that's not chaos to me. And I look at the, the England side, and one of the things I pick out of the England side, the side that started against Wales, the entire pack was drawn from eight different rugby clubs. And you look at the entire pack and you go, well, these guys are good players. But how long is it going to take Eddie Jones to get those eight eight players from eight different clubs to be able to play in the way Ireland are playing, whatever system they want to they want to play at. And I think one of the unique things about Irish rugby is that you look at Mac Hansen, who came in from, from uh, Connacht, and he fits perfectly into the system because the rugby he's playing in Connacht isn't quite like all the other provinces, but it's very similar to it. And he's able to transition. You want to call it chaos, like a rose is still a rose by another name, but none should smell so sweet. Call it, call it what you want. Yeah. But the players understand what is expected of them and it's a broader game than Joe Smith and is asking more questions of defence. Hi Liam, it's Rob here. I, I asked Andy a question after the Alton Nations Cup game where they took on New Zealand and said in terms of the potential of this team to their performances, where would he rank them? For you, what are we seeing now with this team? I think we're still in a, in a sense of evolution and I think that the game against France, I was at the game in Paris, I think... That was an Irish team that was made up of Lions Test players and Lions Test winners, European Cup winners. And I think that game was probably the biggest game they'll have played in their career to this point. The timing of it was perfect. We lost the game, but only just. If we'd won that game, we'd be in the old Irish cycle of, oh, it's a Grand Slam potential. And next thing we get to the World Cup and we we fall off the, the ledge a little bit. I think we've a bit to go. And I think losing to France shows we have. There's question marks over our 10. Sexton definitely squeezes more out of this Irish team than Carberry does at this point in time. And the big question for me is when we play against the power sides, and I'm not so sure England qualify as a power side. France do, South Africa do, and it looks like we might be playing one of those in the, in the if we get through to the playoffs in the World Cup. So how can Ireland play at a pace and a skill level that fatigues the big fatties of France and, and England and South Africa to a point that we can win those games? And we still have yet to kind of unlock that, but we're a long way uh, towards it. So I think this Irish side, I'm enjoying watching them. I'm enjoying being at the games and I really am appreciating the skill set and the level of the players that are playing for Ireland in, in the jersey. But that question of how do we, particularly when you play against France in, in Paris, we did, they stacked their bench, didn't they? They had an extra forward on the bench. So how do you fatigue these guys enough to score and I think if the Irish game against France went on another few minutes I think we might have got there because the the, the physique the, the pace the fitness and the skill set of the Irish team but in an 80 minute window that's probably the question mark for me can we exert our game upon the bigger teams in those in those moments I'll tell you the game that I refer people back to as the way in which you can do that in the sort of style uh, is in the last World Cup when the All Blacks beat the Springboks in the pool stages. Um, 
and then it will be a reversal. And that's, you know, they, they've managed to pull them uh, here and there, but it takes a very good team to stay with them. Look, it almost feels like, Alan, because of the Italy game, it was such a one-off, and it ended the way it was unsatisfactory all round for, for reasons which, you know, no one wants to, to, to go into anymore. Um, it feels like they've had an extended break since the, uh, the proper game against France. Uh, helpful or not? I, I was really disappointed with the Italian game and we, we've gone through the scrummaging issue and all that sort of stuff. I was disappointed for a number of reasons. One, because Michael Lowry, uh, I don't know how much you guys have seen Michael Lowry, the, the Ulster fullback. He's he's a brilliant player. But again, as soon as it went to 13 men and actually 12 men at, towards the end, it was kind of a null and void game. Um, so I was disappointed for those guys. So yes, it was it was a disappointing fixture. Um, and we have had the momentum coming in. So it would have been nicer to have played England last week, we'll say, but them's the breaks in a sense um, when you compare Ireland against Wales and England against Wales and you look at at no stage in Dublin did I feel that Wales were even going to contribute to the fixture and then you see how much England struggled I'm, I'm really confused about what England are trying to do how they're trying to achieve what their game plan and it's it's chaos it's like chaos that's what it is yeah, right? see that's different chaos that's, that's the coach isn't, isn't, isn't instilling that chaos that's actual chaos you know that's, that's like the roundabout in the Champs-Élysées you know and the Arc de Triomphe that's chaos <laughs> uh, are you expecting anything different selection wise from Ireland or not? Uh, I suppose I might be in my bonnet a little bit about Ian Henderson, the role. I think that I, I don't. I don't think there's a doubt Sexton's going to start. You know, I, you know, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't. But for me, I think it's a good time to to move Tyke Byrne to six and to move Ian, Ian Henderson into the second row because that's a subtle nod to the physicality of England, but it doesn't it doesn't in any way impact the skill set of what Irish packed. I think Ian Henderson could be important if he's fit. Now, yeah. he played a full 80 uh, for Ulster the weekend. So I think if, if it was, and obviously we know Andrew Porter uh, is out, uh, that means a Keane Healy most likely, the, the ripe old Keane Healy most likely start and probably Dave Kilcoyne on the bench as well. So it does, Ireland are a little light in, in the prop department uh, and losing Andrew Porter does remind us of that. Well, I hate to pick up on the word ripe old there, Liam, but there's a big old event happening on Friday as well. There's England versus Ireland Legends game at the Stoop. Uh, tell us a bit about it and, and what will the money be going towards? Well, it's it's been running now for, I don't know, about 10 years. And there's it's genuine legends. There's World Cup winners, there's Lions Test players have been playing both on an England and Ireland side. It's been in the Stoop every second year. And we've been getting like seven, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 uh, to, 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 to attend. Um, the game itself, if you can remember a couple of years back when poor Anthony Foley, a really good pal of ours, passed yeah. away, there was a massive night in the RDS that we celebrated um, his loss, um, untimely loss, as you can imagine, a great legend. This time round, Gary Halpin is the forefront because Gary and you'd have played with and against him probably, Brian, would you? You'd see. Yeah, I know, Gary. Yep. Yeah, and um, Gary was taken from us really, really surprising last year. So it, it's kind of, he's the lead name. Uh, and again, all the legends, Shane, Burn, um, Mike Tyndall, etc., from both sets of size are going to play, and it's on in the stoop uh, this Friday evening um, at uh, seven forty. Times kick off seven forty-five. Yeah, so it's uh, it's 
It's been great. And uh, the Stoop is a wonderful, wonderful location. There's afterwards there's drinks and the usual crack afterwards in the bar. But like there's lots and lots of legends talking out. And there's a whole new genre player coming in this year. So Billy Holland, who's just retired, he's talking out. Chris Henry's. So I was going to say, well, isn't there a, a safety issue here? People who've just retired. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> you could have people like me on the other end of it. <laughs> That's it. Well, my selection was never guaranteed, but it's less guaranteed now at this stage. I'm definitely moving down the, the food chain. But uh, it's great. And do you know what? Brian, um, a lot of like Shane Byrne, myself, other guys, we played uh, pre and post amateurism and professionalism. And there's this kind of cynical kind of look at look at the professional guys, the, the truly professional guys who've known nothing but professionalism need to understand the old amateur ethos. And it's brilliant. Yeah. It's really, really brilliant to see likes of Billy Holland and Ian Keekley and these guys coming back in because there is a kind of a thing, oh, a number of the players who finish, they don't realise the importance of this camaraderie and this crack and this mm. messing that goes on. And it's a natural thing that the amateur, ex-amateur guys have. And it's brilliant to see a kind of a new genre of, of the pros coming in and saying, yeah, we want to carry on this gauntlet too. And like, it's a big night and uh, Gary's family are going to be there as well. Carl and her family are going to be there. And Bentley, the son, I believe is going to tag out. Now he's not 35, so he doesn't quite qualify. <laughs> but I think the night that's in it, it'll be great to see him. He'll be taking part in the pitch as well. Well, let's hope everyone turns out for that great cause. Uh, it will be a great game and a great crack for all involved, I'm sure. Let's hope there are no injuries. Uh, there'll be uh, some details in the programme notes about that. Uh, you can buy tickets online. You'll be able to turn up on the night as well. Um, let's, see, let's see if we can get near 10,000. It'd be really nice, wouldn't it? Uh, Rob, look, France travelled to Wales on Friday night. They're still on course through Grand Slam. Can you uh, can you see anyone stopping them? Can you see Wales? Let's start, let's start there. Wales. Can you see Wales stopping them? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. I can't see Wales stopping them. Right, I let's think move on. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're talking about a French team where normally you'd always have to be. Like, well, you know, they're playing away. You're not quite sure if they're going to do what they know. You know, they can do at home. Well, that's one of the most impressive things about them, isn't it? They've oh, stopped yeah. all that nonsense. They've stopped it, and you start looking through the team sheets and looking at a bit of an analysis of who's gone well and. You just can't stop naming names. There's obviously the, the God level, the tier level we're talking about, Antimac and DuPont, where you know they're writing their own uh, celebrated history as they're going. But then, then you've got the younger players coming through, people like Wookie and uh, Fiku is one of the older statesmen, but still leading. Villiers constantly working through them. Dante. Like, where uh, and then you've, got, then you've got these really solid people like Olivon, Aldrich, you know, just really, really solid, good, good international players. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited by the French. And I normally would always say the one word I associate with the French is frustrating. Yeah. But now it's exciting. Yeah. They, they really are yeah. setting a precedence and it's up for the rest of the teams yeah. to take a note because they are the form team in the world right now. Well, Wales have got to Josh Navidi back and let's let's be fair to Wales. He, well, I don't like to be, but we have to be. Let's be fair to Wales. Um, and the fact is they've had a lot of very influential players missing. Um, you know, just the loss of Alan Wynne-Jones on his own, you know, and what he's meant to them has been very significant. But people like Navidi, Tipperick, very good carriers as well as as players run by the breakdown, and they, you know that's what they've they've missed. They're slowly getting back to full strength. Do you think overall it is possible that they could be in and around fifth? Um, do you think it, they need to be particularly worried before the World Cup, or it's not ideal as preparation? But with the 
players returning, are they much better than we think they've shown? Well, Wales always come to a Six Nations campaign with very little expectation and more often than not overachieve. And that's not, you know, disparaging to them. I really like how Wales play the game. My fear is there's not enough substance to how they play because you see a top-level name being out. Who's replacing them? Like They're really strong in the, in the tradition of the centres and back row in Wales. But with these injuries coming through, I don't think the regions are at a good enough level where they're really then pushing these top players and it becomes this horrible comfort zone where you can name your starting 15 and hope that they stay fit yeah. for seven or eight weeks. And that, that's the concern. You've got Italy as their last fixture um, on, on the Super Saturday to finish things up. So you'd like to say, well, that's almost a guaranteed win from the historical results perspective of the Six Nations. But actually, Wales need to do a bit of a deep dive here. They've got change at the top, as we spoke to Nigel Walker just the other week on this very pod, and they've got plans in place. But at the moment, it feels fragmented and that's not a good thing for an international team uh, one of the things I think I mean this is going to sound strange because actually they showed more attacking verve certainly the second half than England did uh, when they lost narrowly at Twickenham but my other concern for Wales is this when you've got sides like Ireland France New Zealand looking to perfect their chaos theories or their unstructured theories Welsh rugby does not seem to be aiming for that either, even when all their players are there. It seems to be a more structured entity to me. And I just wonder, even if they get all the players back, whether they will come to a World Cup and find, actually, this is this style's moved on. You know, the game has moved on in terms of what you need to win a World Cup. I mean, we're talking about counselling perfection here, and they can still be very competitive. But ultimately, I'm not sure that, they're, that the way their team plays, even if they're all there and fit, is the one is 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 in the direction that the game's going now? Well, if you think at Pivac and, and Jones as well as his, his deputy, what they did at Scarlets and how they made them play and how threatening they were in your European level, really pushing the top teams, that hasn't really transitioned. Saying that, he's had to inherit Warren Gatland's reign, yep. which you know was definitely not down the chaos theory. It was a very clear and obvious game plan, but it worked. And my, my concern for the world's perspective, just going to back into the. the the narrative of the story of how these players are coming together. They only had one player against England, less than 10 caps. So they haven't got that degree of inexperience that perhaps say, an England team have with four players, less than 10 caps in that game. So you'd like to think that they're already on that way towards playing their style because they've got that experience together. And, and 10 caps doesn't sound a lot, but that's, that's a year and a half of international rugby. So it is, it is trying to create a platform where they can thrive and do what they've been picked for but with cohesion, and at the moment, I don't see that. Um, we also mentioned this before the pod. Charlie Morgan, my colleague in the Telegraph, has written about what makes France tick, and he has found out that they kicked, or they're kicking more than any other team in the competition. And this comes back to a point Eddie Jones made. He hasn't made it recently, but he said his analysts went back over scores and scores of games, over several, even, even longer years, and they found in international rugby that teams that kick more in games win more games. Um, and that was an avowed stated intent. And the problem came with England that they'd look at two phases and not see anything, and then they'd, they'd kick badly. And you can't do that. You've got to kick well. <laughs> but it, but it, is not, it is not just a case of kicking. You know, the chaos theory and, and all these things has to fit in around that. And I'm not surprised about that because that's what Jones found. It's just interesting that Eddie's not mentioned it for a while, and France have kept completely quiet about this. 
They, they have actually, haven't they? I think that their special weapon at the moment, Sean Edwards, is a defence, but it's what they're doing without the ball that's quite impressive in terms of their kicking. I yeah. do I get that soundbite of you kicking off at Eddie Butler about them kicking. They've kicked it again, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Six Nations commentary. But the, the Charlie Morgan piece is fantastic and I'm a real fan of his analysis and what he talks about. He's actually gone into the realms of kicking metres rather than kicking numbers. So a kicking metre might be more of like a long kick downfield or they'll double down on the kicks, not necessarily the box kick, which counts as a kick, but may only go 15, 20 metres. And they're way ahead. They're they're over 3,000 metres kicked. England are fourth, 2,100. So way down on the kicking metres. And what he's basically suggested, and I do recommend everyone to read it because it's a fantastic way of just looking at a game differently. They don't mess about in their own half. They'll kick long and then back that, typically, Sean Edwards' defence that then makes them transition to attack. Their point of difference at the moment is what they're doing with the ball in the opponent's third. And that is what's really hard, which ties in to what this themed pod is of chaos because you cannot defend how they play in those final stages of the game. Well, um... Uh, and also mentioned game Scotland away to Italy. Italy with their travails. I mean, it was a. It wasn't. You say it wasn't their fault. It, it was a player's fault for getting, you know, a red card and what have you. But the game, when it goes down to twelve men, that's not a, that's not a contest, uh, and and that's not what we want. And true, to be fair, that's not what they want. Scotland have been disappointing. They've been beaten up front for for sixty minutes in the last four games. Um, but they could be that well without doing Van der Merwe now. Um, what do you reckon for his red card for an illegal fend? Because he was playing for Worcester against London Irish. I think it was a red card, but um, cause he, I did, well, I'll tell you what, you can choose to defend any way you want. If you do it that way, then you're going to make the referee make a decision. And if it's borderline, that's your fault because you didn't have to do it. So I'll go into a bit of a split on this one. I'll talk about opinion, then I'll talk about the actual fact and the findings. So yeah. the reality is he only hit him with his forearm because the defender was high. Yep. Now, if World Rugby are coming out of directive that you're seven times more likely to get concussed as a tackler than a tacklee, then their whole remit of everything they've done over the last two and a half years is to reduce the tackle height. Yep. That player was as high as Van der Merwe yep. when he tried to make the tackle. That's a fair so, point. So if he's not there, he's not going to get hit in the face. That being said, Van der Merwe, at full flight, and I hate seeing slow motion replays of this because it is impossible to try and replicate just what you're trying to do when this human being is running at you and you're trying to swap them off. Got his timing 0.1 seconds wrong, forearm hit the face rather than the fist, the hand, sorry, the open palm. However, when we go down the head contact process, and this is what the jurisdiction will be for the panel who are going to get together on this tomorrow evening, Tuesday evening, is around the head contact process. So has head contact occurred? Yes, clearly and obviously. Three stages to these procedures, and I get question marks after this second one. Was there foul play? Your eyes on the top of your head. You're already thinking about it. Many people, and this is why it's so polarised. No, I'm only thinking about it because I've done it loads of times. <laughs> <laughs> well, people, people's perception of this is, yes, of course it is. Other people will know because he wasn't intentionally trying to hit him in the face. It wasn't like a, an elbow. It wasn't like a punch. It was an unintended handoff. So that, that's the evidence there. When he went to try and fend him, the play was so close, he couldn't get the extended arm out. His forearm hit him. So at that point then, if you say no, you're into the realms of penalty. I wish people could see you going through this motion in the room now, trying to work out where your hand would be. But the third tier of this, and this is really important now, is what is the degree of danger, which again is so interpretive by what you see. If you've said there's foul play, you're into that third bracket. Therefore, if it's a high risk of danger, it could be red card, he could be banned 
for six weeks down to three with good record. Or potentially, if it's low, it could be down at penalty kick. And never before have I seen a situation, and I do like to read these comments online, where it's so polarised from being a red card, six-week ban, or, yeah, probably just a penalty there, actually. And that's why Twitter is carnage at the moment for this one. Could even say it's chaos, Brian. (laughs) Online chaos. So I don't think Van der Merwe, personally, will be banned. Let's go on to another controversial subject. Championship leaders Doncaster will be appealing the decision made by the RFU to deny them a chance to be promoted to the Premiership next season. Their ground currently holds 5,183. I don't know how they work. I was going to say, what's yeah. very specific? But they need 10,001. I don't know, 10,001. To be accepted uh, into the Premiership, they said they're confident of getting the ground up to speed in time. Now, the... <sighs> My views on all this is one of the, the biggest problems of English rugby is the championship is a mess. It is not consistent. You've got two or three teams who want to go up and might just about, and it is not certain, in my opinion, have the wherewithal to do that. Then you've got a, a, a raft of teams like my old club, Nottingham, who just want to be semi-pro and stay there. Um, and then you've got teams who are... You know, coming up and down like Isha did, and and, and you know, Richmond potentially. You know, who are who are not really looking. They, they, if they get into the championship, that's that's because they've had a good season, but they're not really looking as a stepping stone towards getting into the Premiership. And coming out of that is just a mess. So you're not getting the consistency of fixtures. You've got the team that obviously uh, used to come down, um, and I've been an advocate of ring fencing the Premiership uh, in a specific way and saying. You don't drop someone and promote someone every year. You do it on a more structured basis, which gives clubs time to plan. I'm still of that view. Um, you know, they are they are saying, look, they, they're very disappointed about this. The only failure was the ability to demonstrate capacity ground in all respects were there. Um, we uh, will be very confident we will get the required capacity. The problem is this, isn't it? If you're not granted it, are you just going to build it on the on the thing that they might give it you next time if you qualify, but they might not? They'll feel the dreams approach. Yeah. Feel that they will come. Do you know what's hilarious about this? I say hilarious. It's actually quite disheartening. What do you reckon the capacity is for a premiership football team requirement? I don't know. 5,000. So to get a certificate for the football is 5,000. For the rugby, <laughs> it's 10,000. Work that one out. And that's from DCMS. So I, I think what we're doing here is were getting shrouded by the headline. Realistically, there was no intention whatsoever of promoting a, a championship team this yep. year. Yep. Um, there's been a load of sandbags flying around. They expect the uh, the diligence of the teams coming up to potentially put in between 30 and £35 million pounds to buy P-shares to get a premiership stake. It dilutes the current premiership team's funding if another team goes in. So you can understand why there's a little bit of resistance towards it. What I find... Again, demoralising. I get so negative when I come on this, but I swear I'm a positive person. It's the mess of who you're actually trying to deal with because you've got the professional game body, the PGB, you've got the RFU and the PRL, each of which have their own specific interests of the game. And then aligned with that, you've got the championship board who, like you've just said, are ranging from absolute lovely to be here, semi-professional, thanks very much, I'm a championship player. We're happy at that. Bedford. Bedford. I'd probably say 9 out of 12 of them, to be honest, mm. or 11 of them. But then you've got the top end, 
who are saying, yeah, actually, we want to be professional. So Ealing, for me, I feel they're the ones hard done to here. Doncaster, I don't believe in September when they set out their season, they had intent to be a Premier Do you think they might either have got the financial wherewithal? Yeah, well, Ealing definitely do. I mean, they've got a man who has pretty much put his hands in his pockets. It's Mr. Trailfinders. He's going to be um, pretty much back in that team as a benefactor, like every other team has, without necessarily getting much back from it. And, and surely rugby should be saying, how can we help that, rather than, actually, can we put a few mm-hmm. barriers in your way? Austin Healy wrote in the Telegraph midweek, should forget about the idea of academies and ring fence the premiership and let young natural talent make their way through lower levels rather than waste away in academy setting. Fine, fine words from Mr Healy. I think when he talks about youth rugby, it's interesting because I guess from that point of view, he's thinking about what they go through at the moment. I think he, he was of the pretty much an amateur progression into a lesser team that were hugely dominant. My, my fear is exactly that, that at the moment in time now, you get squads of, say, 50, 55 players in premiership teams and accounting for a third of them being injured. Mm-hmm. Those young players still aren't playing, so they're professional bag holders. And you know yourself, the only way of learning how to play the game of rugby is to play rugby. Yeah, so I absolutely agreement that something needs to be done to support these younger players. Ring fencing, I get as well. I think people start losing the romance of these dead rubber games or you know, the focus around it not being in, intense enough at the bottom end of the table compared to the top. But if you make the, the top side of the draw so appealing mm-hmm. that teams are fighting for position, as we've got at the moment with the top four in the Premiership, then there isn't much looking down to what the other teams are going. Uh, and I think that's... Also, to bear in mind, I have to fundamentally agree with Austin Healy. My, my kind of rewritten model on this is to align it with universities. So books at the moment have a very strong programme. And from that, you could create a sevens, women's and fifteens pathway from the age of 18 to 22, at the end of which every single one of them will have a degree, which is very South African in what they do. But how good is that to champion? Not only are we going to progress your rugby, we'll give you something to fall back on at the back end of your finishing. Mm. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Thank you very much to my co-host Rob Vickerman and to my guest Liam Toland for joining me. I'll be back next week to recap what should be a seismic game at Twickenham. England have won three out of the last four, but you would say Ireland are probably favourites going into this one. We'll have all the other action reviewed as well as looking at the final round of games when everyone, I think, confidently predicts that France will be facing England with a home tie to win a Grand Slam. But let's, let's see what happens, shall we? Until then, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.